dad, Roger Dale. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3, verse number 22. Or you can look on the screen at the verses. We're moving forward from the amazing discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. And today we find our old friend, John the Baptist, making his second appearance here in the Gospel of John. We all have our traditions, especially so at Christmas time. And one of my traditions that I carried on for years that I ended this year was to stay up late on Christmas Eve and catch at least a part of the midnight mass broadcast from Rome. But this current Pope is the reason for why I ended that tradition. Without hesitation, I will tell you that he is a wicked man. There have been conservative popes. There have been all kinds of popes. This pope is wicked. He blesses what God calls an abomination. The receipts are from his own mouth. If you're paying attention to what's going on in the news. I've learned far more as you know, being raised Roman Catholic, about Roman Catholic theology since becoming a Christian than I ever did as a practicing Catholic. And I even went to Catholic school. Religion was part of my school day. Every single day we were at school. And I used to find it fascinating to watch the Christmas Midnight Mass broadcast from Rome has come on every midnight on national television for as long as I can remember. But I used to find it fascinating to watch for several reasons. And one of the things that most people don't think about that's so amazing is the amount of wealth that is amassed on that altar at one time from the Pope to all the cardinals in their silk robes to the millions of dollars literally worth of art and the basilica itself and the amount of money that it's worth. It's really, really a stunning parade of wealth and power. And and we look at all that as Christians And how do we react to that? Well, in this text before us today, just so happens that John the Baptist speaks to that very issue. If you'll glance down real quick to verse 30 here in chapter 4, you will see where John the Baptist says, he, meaning Christ, must increase. But I must decrease. Now that is a great axiom. 
That is a great statement. In fact, that is the first law of ministry. He must increase. I must decrease. Humility. That is the first law of ministry. Preachers have to get right what we are and what our role is. We are just clay pots ordained to be simply the instruments of truth proclamation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul preached Christ. He made much of Christ. And he made nothing of himself. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. As you know, bondservants properly translated, slaves, doulas. That's why we say the first law of ministry is humility. And John's statement here in our text for today expresses that so well. He must increase, I must decrease. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Appreciate them, yes. Love them, yes. Give them glory, no. Exalt them, In any way? No. When Peter gives instructions to pastors, he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All faithful, honorable ministers should always make much of Christ and nothing of themselves. 
And that is exactly what we're going to see here in our passage today. So let's just start by reading our passage. John chapter 3, verse 22, and we'll read through verse 30. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Any so-called minister, pastor, bishop, whatever the title may be, who exalts his own office and his own position into that of some kind of priest as a mediator between God and man is a person who is perverted in his claims. There's only one high priest. And only one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Christ Jesus. Any so-called minister who declares himself an authority over the church is a deceiver and a liar. Any so-called minister who says he exercises Power over the church is a deceiver and an antichrist. Listen, any minister who views himself as anything more than a simple Christian, equal to every other Christian, has corrupted himself. Any so-called minister who claims to be the head of the church dishonors King Jesus because Jesus is the head of the church. The Pope carries the title the vicar of Christ, which means the earthly representative of Christ, and yet he blesses what God says is an abomination. Homosexual unions. The Pope claims the name Holy Father. That dishonors the true Father, Creator, to whom that title belongs exclusively. 
Because Jesus said, call no man father. Pastors are not anything more than other believers. We are just those who are holding this stewardship of this particular service that we are called to. And we are not to be elevated above anybody else. J.C. Ryle said this, Every faithful minister must be content to be less thought of by his believing hearers in proportion as they grow in knowledge and faith and seek Christ himself more clearly. That should be ongoing throughout your Christian life. The more you see of Christ, as long as you're at this church, the less you should see of me. He must increase. I must decrease. Remember, we studied about how Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who had ever lived. And remember, that was because he had the greatest role of any man who had ever lived. He was pronouncing the the coming of the Messiah. And so therefore, he was the greatest servant who ever lived. He was the greatest prophet who ever lived, save Jesus himself. But what were his clothes like? Camel hair. What was his diet? Locusts, wild honey, whatever he could eat, whatever he could find. When he came along, there hadn't been a prophet in over 400 years in the land of Israel. And his joy was in being hidden out in the desert. His joy was to bring Christ into view for the world to see. And you got to understand, in John's time, he was the ultimate preacher. He had national popularity. All of Jerusalem and Judea would flock out to the desert to hear this prophet preach And the lesson that he teaches us is how important it is that he fades away from that popularity and Christ becomes everything. And John is pointing people to the Messiah. And as Jesus is starting to attract followers with his teaching and his ministry and his miracles, John's ministry, with all that popularity, is beginning to fade. But before it totally does, their ministries overlap one another. And that's out of necessity that they overlap because there's a transition that's happening right here. This is an especially important text for anybody called into the ministry because here you have this ministry and this minister being diminished and fading away and at the same time Christ being more and more and more exalted. And it's a lesson for all of us. Now the best we can tell it seems that John the Baptist's ministry 
overlaps with Jesus's ministry for somewhere around six months or so. And and it had to be that way because he's still the one who's introducing Jesus. So in this time period, John is still ministering and preaching repentance and preaching that Messiah had come and telling them who he was and, and baptizing the people who repented. And guess what? At the same time, Jesus was doing the same thing. Preaching repentance, preaching the kingdom, declaring himself to be the Messiah, baptizing people. The ministries were overlapping. Now this all brought about a problem. Man, it's a very human problem. John's disciples started to feel jealous of Jesus' ministry. John didn't. There wasn't no rivalry with John. But his disciples did. And that is a textbook example of how weak we can be. But that is contrasted in this text with the amazing Humility of John the Baptist. Now let's get into the setting. Look at verse 22 and we'll pick up the story. It starts out with, after these things. And of course, that means after he came to Jerusalem, he went to the temple, remember? He attacked the temple, drove everybody out. And then he had that whole discourse with Nicodemus that we went through. After all of that, it says next in verse 22, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And that means that they went out of town. Out of Jerusalem, they went into the countryside. And look, it says next, and there he was spending time with them. Now, again, based on what it says later in chapter four, best guess is this is around a six-month time period. We don't have any details of what was going on during this time, expect, except that he was spending time with his disciples. And at the same time, look next there in verse 22, it says he was baptizing. Now, at this point, he was doing the kind of baptism that was the same thing that John the Baptist was doing, the baptism of repentance, which was simply a symbolic washing on the outside to demonstrate a desire to be washed on the inside to get ready for the Messiah's arrival. This is, of course, not Christian baptism as we know it today. That doesn't come along until the New Covenant and the early church in the book of Acts. So Jesus is starting to do essentially what John had been doing. John came preaching the kingdom. John came preaching Christ, preaching repentance, baptizing people. And in this overlap, Jesus is doing the same thing. We see that in verse 23 with one important note. It says, look there, John also was baptizing in Aenon and near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and being baptized. Guess what? You need much water to be baptized the right way. You understand that? And notice that John still had people coming to him. 
And it says the location was in Aenon near Salim. Now, we don't know exactly where those two towns were, but there are two possibilities where there were, and both of those possibilities are in Samaria. You know what that tells us? That when the overlap started, John went way north. As soon as Jesus went into the regions around Jerusalem and Judea, John went somewhere else. He left Judea to go north. He was in no competition with Jesus. This is the first act of a humble man who leaves the very location of all his national success to go somewhere else to make room for Jesus. Now, back in verse 22, we saw that Jesus was spending time with his disciples and baptizing. Look over at chapter 4 quickly with me in verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Stop there. So here we get this little footnote. More people now are going to Jesus than have been going to John. Notice verse 2 here in chapter 4. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. What does that mean? Well, it means he was preaching and he was calling people to baptism But he was having his disciples actually physically doing the baptism down in the water. You want to know why? To prevent who were you baptized by? I was baptized personally by Jesus. Jesus didn't want any of that. So he had his disciples doing the act. So what we learn here is that Jesus' popularity was increasing. And John's was fading. And apparently, John's disciples started to worry about the implications of this. Go back to chapter 3, verse 24. It says, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. Now, why do you think that statement just pops up right here? Because it's an important statement. I mean, it seems obvious because it just said in verse 23 he was baptizing. So obviously at this point he was not in prison. So why does John stick it in here? I'm going to tell you why. It's because in Matthew and Mark, John's imprisonment is recorded immediately after Jesus' baptism by John. The way both of those gospels read, John baptizes Jesus and then boom, John is in prison and they just don't record the time gap. And people have been reading those gospels for 30 years before John writes his. So John wants to make real sure that the record of history is straight and he gives this little detail of the chronology that they didn't. Oh, don't you love the Bible? It's exact, and that's why we have four Gospels. So we're in this overlap period here in our text, and people are shifting from John to Jesus because John is sending them to Jesus, and then Jesus is doing these jaw-dropping miracles. And in this context, we come to verse 25, which says, Therefore, 
there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And purification here refers to baptism. Baptism was symbolic of repentance and purification, as I said. So here they are, and they're having this conversation with this fellow Jew. And with the context here, this discussion, you would think, probably dealt with the distinction between what Jesus was doing and what John was doing. Maybe this guy was a disciple of Jesus who came with questions about this to John's disciples and this discussion gets going. Whose baptism is more important? Hmm? Whose is greater? Is John's baptism greater? Is Jesus' baptism greater? And you do have to wonder, did John's disciples just not get the message? Over and over and over, he had been saying, I am not the Christ. When the leaders came out to ask him, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you that prophet? He said, no, I'm, I'm none of those things. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. His disciples should have known. But they were having a hard time with this situation. They've been with John for a while. They're having a hard time shifting over to Jesus. They, they're really wanting John to stay in a superior position to Jesus because he's their guy. Look next in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, I want you to notice the absence of even the name Jesus here. He who was with you beyond the Jordan. They don't even want to say his name. That's jealousy talking right there. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, he is baptizing, and look at this, and all are coming to him. They are filled with envy. All are coming to him. That's just jealous exaggeration, and and they don't even want to say the name of Jesus. They are zealous, And they are jealous for John the Baptist. And so here they come complaining to John. And it's really a strange attitude for them to have because it's just, it's just so contrary to everything John had been telling them. But this is the flesh. And what's John's answer here? How does he feel about the masses of people shifting to Jesus? How does John feel about Jesus rising and his fading away? Well, that comes next in verse 27. I love this verse. It says, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And I mean, that just kind of settles it, doesn't it? 
Bing. It's like John 15, 5, where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, any gifts, any position or ministries in God's kingdom, no matter how small, no matter how big, rests completely on God's free and sovereign grace. God is in total control of every ministry. I love in 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have received this ministry as we received mercy. Being in the ministry is a mercy. What is a mercy? It's something you don't earn. It's something you don't deserve. It's something you are given even though you are unworthy of having it. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 to 13, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's me. That's me. Paul was shown mercy in being put into the ministry, just like everybody else. You don't earn it. You don't get the position because you're holier than everybody else. It is a mercy to be in the ministry from God. That is also a tremendous privilege at the same time to live your life out in service to the king. Paul says in Colossians 1.25 of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me. Ministry is a stewardship. Ministry is a responsibility. It's an accountability. Anything. Thing that a minister has in terms of giftedness, influence, every aspect of it is given as a mercy from heaven. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's just foundational. The principle is very clear. Ministry is a mercy that flows to an unworthy Christian based upon God's sovereign grace. And of course, I'm talking about genuine God-glorifying ministry, not the ministry of all the wolves that we have out here in professing Christianity land in America. I'm talking about genuine, faithful Christian ministry. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. And what John is saying in today's language is this. It's not about me. This is what heaven has deposited in my hands as a mercy and a tremendous privilege. And folks, that's the only way that anybody should look at ministry. But sadly, so many don't. On Twitter, they have a woke preacher clips. It disgusts me. It it disgusts me to even think that these men 
claim to hold the same office that I do. It's an embarrassment to see these preachers on the internet and their foolishness. Now, John illustrates this in the next two verses. Look in verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been set ahead of him. Now, can you only imagine how many times they heard him say that? I am not the Christ. It's not about me. And then next he gives this great illustration. Look in verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. What made them jealous made him joyful. That's the right attitude. You've heard me ask this question before. I'm going to ask it again. If somebody came right down the street here on Hooper Road and planted a good, fine, sound doctrine church just like ours with expository preaching and reverent worship and all the rest and people started coming in droves and getting saved and they quickly grew to three times our size and we stayed just like this, what would your attitude be about that church? Hmm? Would it be jealousy? Shouldn't be. Because this is not about us. That's the point I'm trying to make to you. It's not about me. It's about King Jesus. We are by far the smallest of the eight churches of the Here We Stand conference. By far. And I pray all the time for their churches to grow and to flourish because we're not in competition. We're on the same team. In Philippians 1, Paul is in prison and the young buck preachers are outside and they're thinking, boy, this is our time to shine. The old man is in prison and now his ministry's been shut down and they start talking bad about him. And it hurts. They're saying, oh, Paul is in prison because of his sin and God is punishing him. They're they're preaching Christ from envy, he says. And what's his attitude about that? We'll look at verse 18 in Philippians 1. (laughs) He says, what then? God sounds like Luther. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I Rejoice. Let me tell you something. That's humility right there. No matter what, Christ is preached and I'm glad about it. Well, I don't care what the young bucks are out there doing as long as they're preaching Christ. John the Baptist had no competitive bone in his body toward Jesus. He was like a best man at a wedding. And that's the illustration that we just read in verse 29. Back in those days, the best man had a very important role to play. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Weddings were real big deals back then. They lasted as long as a week. They were planned many months in advance. Remember, the bridegroom's over there getting the house ready. He's got to 
prove to the girl that he can build a house and maintain it in order for them to be married. They were in that betrothal period and then the wedding took place and the house was ready and everything's prepared and the best man who would be his closest friend would would take care of most of the work of the preparation. All the duties and the responsibilities for the preparation of the wedding. And all the while, he'd be communicating with the bride behind the scenes. He would be letting the bride know the when and the where and the how to meet and to get everything ready for the wedding. And when the big day finally came, the best man would take the bride and present the bride to the bridegroom. And John is saying, that's my job. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just here to connect the bride to the bridegroom. I just want to take the weary and the heavy laden to Jesus. That's all I want to do. And when I've done that, I rejoice. That's the end of verse 29. Look, so this joy of mine has been made Fool. You guys are jealous. Y'all are all upset because Jesus is getting more people than I am. But I'm telling you, this is why I live for him to get more people. This is what I'm called to do. This, this is, this is my joy. And then my task is done. And then when the bridegroom takes the bride, The best man, he's not even a footnote. Nobody's even looking at him at the wedding. He disappears. And that's exactly why John says next in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. A great ministry never produces disciples of the ministry. It always produces disciples of the Savior. Always. Whenever people worship the man at a church, something is seriously wrong. When Christ is diminished and the minister is elevated, something is corrupt. And it's far away from being a true church. In Christ's church, the ministers never see themselves as anything other than equal to every other Christian, a sinner saved by grace, just given certain gifts and a merciful stewardship from heaven that elevates them above nobody. These people running around calling themselves apostles or buffoons. He must increase. Must is the, is the key word. I must decrease. And at the end of this time of overlap between the two ministries of Jesus and John, John is arrested. And he's still fighting with his disciples about these issues regarding Jesus. Remember, that's why he sends them to get more information. Now, that's a whole other sermon for another day, so I won't delve into all of that. You can read for that. But for now, he's languishing in prison. And one day they call for him. And they bring him out of his cell. And they cut his head off. And they bring it on a plate to Herod's birthday party. And that's the last scene of John the Baptist. 
in the Bible. But at the moment of that decapitation of his head, he was ushered immediately into eternal glory. And I am quite certain that John the Baptist heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. So that's I must decrease. The next time we're in John, we're going to look at and focus on he must increase.